And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Certainty in a World of Doubt has been our current teaching series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 36 through 50. We're talking about my favorite topic this morning, intimacy with God. And uh, I love this. I love, I love his presence in my life. And that's what we're going to talk about. Also, grab your sermon notes out. Follow along. Here's, here's where we're going. In our text, we meet two people. In our text, we meet two people. One is a very religious, moral man, a Pharisee. And the other is a very irreligious, immoral woman, a prostitute. Now, what's interesting about this scenario is that both, both are drawn to Jesus. Both are in the presence of Jesus. Both are listening to Jesus' teaching. But one leaves distant, indifferent, and unchanged. The other leaves feeling close to God, lavished by his love, and transformed by his grace. Now, in a general sense, in a general sense, everyone who comes to Desert Breeze this weekend will have one of those two experiences. There's actually a third experience. A third experience would be just irreligion and don't give a rip about God and kind of doing your own thing, but all of us could fit into one of those three categories, irreligion, religion, or the gospel. The two we're looking at this morning are those two experiences, religion or relationship with God, the gospel. So, so what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. What is intimacy with God? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Would you bow your heads with me before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes? So God, there's nothing that we want more than to, to know you, to experience you. Father, God, intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. But because of sin, we fail to see how desirable and beautiful you are. We fall short of your glory by not desiring it above all else. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place for our sins so that that we, by grace through faith in him, are rescued and reconciled back to you. Teach us what intimacy with you is, what it does, how we can experience more of it in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So I'm going to walk through it a, a bit slowly and give you a little bit of context here. There's a, there's a historical, there's a cultural context you need to understand for this to make sense to you. And so we will begin reading verse 36 of chapter 7 of Luke, the gospel of Luke. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, anytime the Bible uses that word, behold, it's it's wanting you to really fix your attention on this. Pay attention. This is really, really important. So he's saying, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So this woman of the city, it's it's a nice way of saying that she's a prostitute. And so a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
stop there just for a minute because I, I, I need to explain a little bit of what's going on here. And uh, obviously, you guys know this, maybe, maybe you don't, but Pharisees were not favorable towards Jesus. Typically, uh, Pharisees, when they interacted with Jesus, wanted to either entrap him or accuse him. And there was a lot of jealousy because of his popularity and what he was speaking, and, and he, he called him out on a number of occasions. Had some pretty uh, truthful words towards them that brought a lot of conviction to them that they didn't like. And so, uh, it was, you guys know this too, that it was the Pharisees, it was the religious leaders that hung Jesus on the cross ultimately. And so, we're not sure why he's inviting him to his home, but we know the general attitude of Pharisees uh, towards Jesus. Also, it says here in verse 37 that they reclined at table. What does that mean? Anybody here typically recline at your table? Not usually, okay? You, we usually sit upright and we're sitting at the table, feet under the, under the table. But they had a different setting. These are very low tables, and they would recline. They would kind of lay back with their feet back behind them and lean with their elbow on a pillow. And so it's, it's totally different, reclined at a low table, leaning on a cushion with their feet behind them. And what's interesting about this scenario, why would a, a prostitute be in their home at that time? Well, dinners involving dignitaries were often open to spectators, and uh, what would happen is that they'd open up the doors, Jesus comes in, and then there would be spectators from the community that would come in and line the perimeter of that room. Isn't that fascinating? So that's why she was in there along with others. And it was there kind of a form of entertainment and also information to find out what's going on in the, in the community. Perhaps maybe the first reality TV, okay? I don't know because they're, they're just kind of watching, they're listening to the conversation, what's gonna happen next? So they kind of stay back, and so they're kind of watching this conversation, and here you have this woman of the city, a prostitute, and she comes in, and look at verse 38, look at, look at how she responds to Jesus, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking about this, he's thinking this out, and he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So you get this attitude kind of, and that was very typical to Pharisees, very condescending, uh, very condemning, and that was their attitude. But this is what's fascinating about it is that he's thinking about Jesus if he knew, but Jesus knows what he's thinking because look at verse 40. By the way, Jesus knows what you're thinking, okay? So he's thinking, and Jesus knows, and... Uh, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered and said, say it, teacher. Now, anytime Jesus says, I have something to say to you, get ready. Because he's just handed you a grenade with the pin pulled, okay? And, and that's, that's about what's going to happen. Do you guys ever feel like that from time to time? I know I do. When I study God's word, I feel like he can read my mind. I feel like he's like speaking right to me. Anybody there? You feel like that? Yeah. Especially on a, like on a weekend service, as we study the text, we go, oh my goodness, he just, my thoughts and my attitude is being revealed right now, and yeah, I feel exposed, and that's what's happening here. He's going to expose this guy's attitude. And so, uh, so Jesus says 
says to him, verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. So he's going to give us this analogy. And by the way, most people that, I've ever, uh, that have ever read this, they misinterpret it. I've had them tell me, and as I've listened to them, I go, that's not what he's saying. And so you, you need to really listen close. I'll, I'll try to walk you through this. But in this analogy, he says, a, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, it, it was one, one denarius equaled uh, one day's wages. So you can kind of see what he's laying out here. So one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now we kind of get hung up on that, on the, on the amount, but here's what's most important is that when they could not pay, so that's both of them, so both of them could not pay. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? This is Jesus' question. Uh, question to this Pharisee, Simon. And so Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Stop there just for a minute. It almost sounds, he's, he's a little bit snarky here because he says, the one, I suppose, got a little bit of an attitude going on here. I suppose, if you're going to ask me this question, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus said to him, and he said to him, you have judged rightly. Yeah. Now he's going to make his point here in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So he turns to the woman, and he's going to say to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water, no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now stop there just for a minute. Just out of common courtesy, this is what this Simon should have done. And he kind of lays it out here. Should have given him water, should have given him a kiss, should have anointed you know, his feet. He should have done all that. And so what he's saying in this to Simon that if you had any idea of who I am, even beyond common courtesy, if you had any idea of who I am and what I came to do, you would have the same response to me that this woman has. That's his point. That's his point to that. I think that's important. Now, let me just very briefly go back to this idea of the one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Because most people, if I were to ask, well, who's, this, who's the bigger sinner? out of the two. Who's the bigger sinner out of the two? Most people say, well, it's the, it's the woman. She's the bigger sinner. And, and you're missing the point. That's the reason why. And, and people will say, well, the reason why he didn't respond with the gratitude that she did because she had much more sin than he had. That's not the point. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's saying here at all. In fact, let me give you, uh, let me give you another analogy that may, might help you a bit and understanding this idea between the fact that when they could not pay, neither one could pay. Okay, let's just say, let's just say that for you to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to long jump the Grand Canyon. Woo! What do you think of that? Anybody in? Of course not. So, so if you want to get saved, you can long jump the Grand Canyon. And you might 
you know, and I'll say that, oh, fantastic, you're a world-class long jumper. Woo, fantastic. 26, 27, maybe 28 feet you can jump. Guess what? You're going down to the bottom like the rest of us that can only jump maybe five or six feet, okay? That, we're all going down to the bottom of the canyon because none of us are going to be able to jump the Grand You guys know what, how far that is from rim to rim? If you were just to measure it straight across, it's about a mile. None of us can do that. So here's, here's the point. The chasm that separates us from God is like the chasm of the Grand Canyon, and none of us can long jump that. We can't, we can't cross that on our own. We need help. We are all desperate. That's the point that Jesus is making. And if any of us had an idea of what Christ has done for us, we would go through the ceiling in, in affection, in adoration towards Jesus as this woman is. That's the point. That's the point, but oftentimes we're not living in, in reality. She's in touch with reality. And she's more in touch with reality than, than Simon, this Pharisee. And so, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Can you see how people can in, misinterpret that? Well, I've just been forgiven little. I only needed a little bit of assistance. No, you didn't. You needed a lot just like everybody else for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we misinterpret that. And, and, and the fact is, you couldn't pay your debt any more than anybody else. Here, here's the bottom line. Apart from Jesus, you're gonna perish. Romans 3.16. You're either gonna perish or you, have, or you have eternal life. That's, that's the two choices. And it's through Jesus. It's only through Jesus. It's only through him. And so that's the point that he's wanting us to really understand here. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. By the way, uh, the guys that I was studying from, and if you understand the Greek tense here, is that he's actually saying that her sins are forgiven, have been forgiven. He's already had interaction with this woman. This woman has just come into this house to express her adoration and gratitude towards Jesus. So this is something that's already gone down. They've already experienced, she's experienced this, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? How about God? Let's start there, okay? This is God, okay? Only God can do that. And then verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, before we take a look at our, our notes here and, and begin to answer that first question of what, what is intimacy with God, I need, to, I need to talk a little bit more about this idea of who's the bigger sinner? Because most people will look at that story and think, well, she's the bigger sinner. Pharisee's not as sinful as she. And yet one of the uh, theologians that I studied, let me read a quote from him. Listen up. He said this, Pharisees are the worst of sinners. Why? Because the worst possible sinner and the most unredeemable of all is the one who thinks he's not a sinner and doesn't need redemption. It is the one who thinks that God is pleased with him the way he is. 
The worst kind of sin is the sin of self-righteousness because it treats the sacrifice of Christ with utter disdain as being unnecessary and foolish. Whoa. My wife and I were watching uh, 2020. It was an interview with Caitlyn Jenner this last uh, weekend. And Caitlyn Jenner said, and I quote, the only thing that will keep me from heaven is that I wasn't a very good dad. And then he went on to preach, or she went on to preach that, and you have no reason not to be a good dad, and you need to be a good dad, and parents, you need to be there for your kids. So what is, what's her perspective as it relates to salvation? It's earned. It's something that I can earn. I can achieve it. It's works righteousness. It's very pharisaical. It's very like this religious kind of attitude here. My wife and I were watching 60 Minutes last, last Sunday night, and Bloomberg was on there. You guys know who Bloomberg is, former mayor of New York City? And this is what he said, and I quote, when I get to heaven, there will be no interview like this, like the 60 Minutes interview. There will be no interview. They will let me write in because I have helped a lot of people with my philanthropy. Isn't that interesting? And then he went on and talked about, you know, he's, he's a billionaire, and he's given a billion or, or so helping people to stop smoking. So, so that's really consistent with our culture. In fact, I can't help but think that some of you actually believe, believe that, believe that it's by your good works that somehow you're going to achieve a right standing with God and you're going to make it into heaven because of your good person. In fact, if you were to most, ask most Americans, uh, are you going to heaven? They go, sure am. At least I, I hope so. And then you were to ask them, so what makes you think you're going to heaven? The majority of them would say, because I am basically a a good person. And the Bible says, no, you're not. No, you're not. In fact, you're lost worse than all. Because not only are you a sinner, but you don't know it, and you don't see how desperately you are in need of a Savior. And so, and so if you're here this morning, and you're beginning to see, oh my goodness, I am I'm shot, I'm lost, I'm, there's no way I can make it to heaven. Praise God, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. He's draw, drawing you to the Savior. You can run into the arms of a Savior who, who came to, to rescue us and redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. It's a gift. You can't earn it, you can't achieve it, but you can embrace it by grace through faith in Christ. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Okay, so we need to talk about intimacy with God because that's, that's the best thing about the Christian life is having this intimate relationship with God. So what is intimacy? Here it is. Here's the first few fill in the blanks. It is giving to Jesus your heart's deepest loyalties or allegiances is the word I've got for your fill in the blank. Allegiances and affections. So allegiances and affections. I need to spend some time on those two. And so I need to give you a little bit more context here. Uh, so what is intimacy? It is giving to Jesus your heart's deepest allegiance. That, that, that's the first thing we'll look at. So for a woman to let down her hair in public was such an act of intimacy that rabbis had ruled that it was grounds for divorce in this culture. 
And, uh, and, and this was something that she would never do for free, this woman. But that's not all she does. In this hot and arid climate before deodorant and air conditioning, obviously the smells, the smells <laughs> are probably, probably pretty incredible. And, uh, and so, so women with substantial income would wear a perfume bottle around their neck that would release an aroma that was very beautiful and attractive. It, it was kind of a bulb shape with a long neck. The, the top of it was open so that it would have that aroma coming out without, without it being poured out in any way and losing uh, you know, the ointment out of the bottle. Now, for a prostitute, this would have been the tool of her trade. It was where she would put the bulk of her money it was very expensive, and uh, so she'd put the bulk of her money in this because it was the main way for her to make money, and for her to pour it out on Jesus' feet, she would have to break the bottle, and in doing so, she is pouring her livelihood, her desirability, and attractiveness out on Jesus' feet. I mean, she's giving her total allegiance, loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's walk through this so that we can understand this. Allegiances, what does it mean that I would give my heart's uh, deepest allegiance to Christ? It is, tr- it is transferring your most basic life trust from where it is to Jesus, from where it is to Jesus. Okay, pop quiz time, here we go. Some of you just woke up right then, okay. I said this. That's the reason I have to do that from time to time, just kind of keep you on your toes here. But pop quiz time. I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, as we've been working through uh, Luke chapter 7, the first 10 verses gave us the definition of faith. So we talked about what is faith defined, and you need to know what faith is defined is, and I'm going to ask you that in a minute. And then that was verses 1 through 10. And then we looked at the object of our faith, verses 11 through 17. And then 18, verses 18, chapter 7, verses 18, all the way to... uh, Verse 35 really talked about the struggle of faith. We talked about doubt last weekend. And so now verses 36 through 50 tells us where our faith will ultimately lead us. So here's my question for you. What are, what are the three elements of saving faith? There are three elements we talked about back about three weeks ago. Three elements of saving faith. Real quick, turn to the person next to you and see if you can come up with one or two of those. Real quick, real quick. How many noticed that this is an open book test, huh? You guys, how many saw that it's on the notes, huh? Okay, okay, so you can use it. You can use the notes. There they are on the notes. See? It's important to take notes. I usually, I usually feed you those answers. So, okay, if you guys have the notes in front of you, if you guys remember this, what was the first one? What's the very first one? Knowledge, knowledge. So three elements of saving faith, knowledge. Are there things that you need to know about God if you're gonna put your faith in him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, so knowledge, so there's knowledge, there's content. So you can, okay, listen to me, everybody. You can know a lot about God and not know God. Does that make sense? Okay, so you can have a lot of knowledge about God and not have a relationship with God. There are those that would call themselves Christians. They know a lot about God, they know a lot about morality, they know a lot about scripture, but they don't have a relationship with God. That's just one of, the, one of the elements of saving faith. 
But, but guess what? You're not going to have a relationship with, that, with God without knowledge about God. You need to have knowledge about God if you're going to have a relationship with him. So that's the first one. That, that would be uh, content. So knowledge equals content. There's, there's things that we need to know about God. What's the next one? Yell out to me. Belief. That was a little bit weaker than that first one when you said that. But, uh, so you got the first one is what? Knowledge. knowledge. The second one is? Belief. Oh, that was better. I like it. And so belief is really about conviction. You begin to believe the knowledge that you have about God. Now, you might think, well, isn't that enough for saving faith? No, no, no. No, it's not. Actually, it tells us in James 2.19 that uh, the demons believe and, in fact, they shudder. They're not saved. So you can actually believe and have an emotional response and still not be saved. You can believe that what the Bible says is true about God and have some sort of kind of response that might be somewhat emotional and have a certain level of conviction, but it actually takes you to the third one, the third one. So, you, so the first one is what? Yell it out to me. Knowledge. Knowledge. The second one is? Belief. And the third one is? Trust. Trust. There you go. So the first one, knowledge, is content. The second one, belief, is conviction. The third one, trust, is, is what? Yeah, it's commitment. It's about making a commitment. It's about giving your life. It's, it's, it's transferring your most basic life trust from where it is to Jesus. There is no relationship without commitment. There is no commitment without vulnerability. Commitment is putting, putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. Now, everyone has a little flask around their neck the things that are of ultimate importance to them. All of us have that in our lives. You will pour it out on somebody's feet or on something's feet. Everybody has to live for something. Everybody is living for something. Everybody here is living for something or someone. Who gets your heart? Who have you given your heart to? You're giving your heart to something. You can't live with unless you give your heart to something or someone. What are you living for? Simon has an intellectual relationship with Jesus, and the woman has a whole person relationship. She is ascribing worth and value to Jesus in such a way that it energizes and engages her whole person, her mind, her emotion, and her will. Everything about her. I mean, that's, she's really defining for us what Christianity looks like and what it means to, to really give your heart's deepest loyalty, uh, your deepest allegiances to Christ Jesus and affections. So what are you living for? If I were to follow you around, that would be a little creepy, wouldn't it, if I just followed you around all the time? Why is that guy here? What's he doing? This is creepy. If I were to follow you around, if I could read your mind as Jesus could read Simon's mind, what would dominate your thoughts? You could see what most important to him, it was very self-righteous. Oh, I can't believe this woman that's here. And if he was a prophet, then he would know that this is a despicable woman. What does that tell you about this guy? So, if, so what dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotions, what moves you to action? Why do you do what you do? 
I can tell you it's going to be based on what is your heart's deepest allegiance. Where have you given your deepest loyalty to? And, and you will be able to see that you're, through your priorities. Is, is Christ your greatest priority and pursuit? Is, is intimacy with him your greatest priority and pursuit in life? And then I think we can un- uncover a little bit more in the next word, affections. So giving your, your deepest allegiances and affections. And, and, and this, gets, this helps us with this idea of intimacy even that much more. Because it, uh, it says here, look at your notes, look up on the big screen. It is enjoying Christ in and of himself as you sense his glory and beauty in your heart in such a way that it gives you pleasure and contentment. That's what she's experiencing. Look at uh, verse 38, verses 38, verse 44, verse 45. She is weeping and kissing his feet. I mean, her heart is smitten with who Jesus is and what he came to do. And now, it's been a while since I've used the word smitten. I was using it there for a while, and I actually had, I got some pushback from from guys primarily. I had guys come up and say, smitten, smitten. Guys don't get smitten. We're not really into that. I had a guy sit across from me and said, you know, I don't think I really relate to Jesus quite like you because I hear you talk about this whole idea of smitten, and I don't know, I just can't get into it. And the more I begin to talk to him, I go, wait, 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 time out, time out. Dude, you're smitten. You're smitten with politics. Because every time I get together with you, all you want to do is talk about politics. That's what dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest emotions, and moves you to action. Come on, dude, you're smitten. Let's use a different word for it. Okay, if you don't like that word. Your heart is captivated. Your heart is entranced. This dominates you. You have given your heart to politics. Or maybe it's not politics. I've seen some of you guys... I've seen how you respond to when you see a hot car out there. Woo, look at that. Woo, yes. Oh, that's, oh, man, oh, I, I, wanna, I want one of those. If that's not smitten, I don't know what is. Come on. We're all smitten. What, what has got a hold of your heart? What's got a hold of your heart? I mean, I, I was even thinking about this whole idea that what, what has a hold of our heart, this whole idea of this worship experience. So affections, it is enjoying Christ in and of himself as you sense his glory and beauty in your heart in such a way that it gives you pleasure and contentment. Do you do that? Do you have that same kind of experience? Maybe during our worship time through those songs, there was something that began to take hold in your heart. You go, it began to land on you and you begin to realize, oh my goodness, as you begin to ascribe worth and value to Jesus in such a way, it brought pleasure to your heart, you begin to find a sense of contentment. That's, that's that idea. It's really, uh, as, as, as we uh, understand that, so your heart is captivated by something, maybe it's, maybe it's not cars, maybe it's guns, okay? <laughs> yeah, you can't wait till that gun magazine comes in the mail, you, you grab that thing and you are, what are you doing? You're adoring. That's what you're doing. Or maybe it's, I know it's in our house, we, we, we'll watch a lot, probably too much of HGTV. <laughs> Fix her upper, baby. And so we'll watch that, and my wife will look over at me, and she'll go, I want that. <laughs> she I want that right there on that Fix Her Upper TV. And I go, why are you talking like that? And, uh, <laughs> and then I'll tell her, I can't do that. 
you've married the wrong dude here. I'm not very craftsmanship oriented. I'm not like that dude on there, okay? And so, but, but I mean, what are we doing? There's almost kind of this, this adoring, and I would say that she's probably not adoring that to the degree that she adores Jesus. At least I hope not. But, but, I, but I hope that none of us do. I hope that none of us do. But, I mean, or it could be the food channel. Could be the food channel. There's, there's adoration. There's, you're, what's, the, what's the dude's name? Guy Fieri? You guys know who I'm talking about there? Uh, what's the name of that show? Diners, Dives, and Dumpsters, something like that. Something like that. Some of those places do look like dumpsters. There was a place here in town that he advertised on there, and it's, it's closed down, okay? <laughs> we went to it, and it was like a dumpster, man. <laughs> but anyway, I shouldn't say that. But, uh, but the fact is, is that what does he do? I mean, he does a good job. When you're done, it's like you don't want to watch that late at night because you're going to want to go out and eat. You want to dive in because that's why. Because that we are naturally, we are worshipers by nature. We worship, but see, what's happened to this woman's heart is that Christ has captured her heart beyond anything else. See, that's Christianity, and what happens is that when you have intimacy with God is that it, it actually turns uh, the things of this world into gifts, not God's, and it, it puts them in their right position. Now, let me give you something here that will kind of help you through this with this understanding of affection. This will be a bit convicting, but we could almost, when we talk about our hearts being smitten, is that you could have one of these three uh, types of relationships with Christ. Is God a business partner to you? Or is he a friend? Or is he a lover? See, see if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, you, you should have a love relationship with Christ. I know that's hard for us guys. Get over it, okay? Just deal with it because you're going to give your heart to something. Give it to Jesus. And I have no problem saying my heart is smitten by him. My heart was smitten a long time ago. I was uh, taken over by his beauty and his glory. I've never been more satisfied. Intimacy with him is my passion and the pursuit of my life. I have no problem saying that. I love him. He gave his life for me. But that, that's normal Christianity because that's what you see in, in this story with this woman. That's healthy Christianity. So is your, is your relationship with him business partnership, which would be your conversations are pretty much goal-oriented. The Bible uses the word petition and not much uh, chit-chat in that. You just come and bring your list to God. Or it could be a friendship relationship. You open your heart about some of your problems the Bible word for that would be confession, so you come and confess, confess to God. Or is it a love relationship? Is he your lover? You have a strong impulse to speak about what you find beautiful about him. It's the, the biblical word would be adoration. The deeper the love relationship, the more the conversation heads toward the personal and toward adoration and praise. So think about your relationship. Do you, do you find time where you're just adoring him? It could be while you're driving down the road and you, you see a beautiful landscape and you just go, oh my goodness, your heart just doesn't just fix out on the landscape, it kind of rolls on up from the landscape and you just thank God for the beauty that you see in that landscape. Or while you're studying God's word, there's those times of just deep affection and adoration towards God. 
See, that would be, that's normal Christianity. That's a love relationship with God. Pharisees may observe consistent times of prayer, but their prayers are mostly petition, bringing lists, and very little, if any, joyful adoration, bringing their love to God. And in fact, many religious types don't have much of a prayer life at all unless things are going, aren't going well in their life. And then they, they hit, hit their knees to the ground and start pouring their heart out to God. They, they devote themselves to prayer until the heat is off in their life, so to speak. In other words, things are going back to normal, so you kind of put God on the shelf and kind of continue to do your own thing. That would be religious kind of an attitude towards God. That's more of a business partnership or more of a friendship kind of relationship, certainly not that lover kind of a relationship. In fact, let me, let me just say that the things that drive you to prayer are really an indicator of what's most important to you. Whatever that is that would drive you to prayer, that thing is more important to you than, than Christ because you're going to him to try to get that which you feel like you're in desperate need of. And so it's kind of revealing a bit of your heart and so if you find yourself only coming to him more out of petition, bringing your list, and then confession, and very little adoration, you don't really understand what intimacy with him is about. I mean, you're missing out on what is the best thing about the Christian life. It's intimacy with him, intimacy with him, knowing him, adoration, enjoying his presence in your life. See. As, as Pharisees, this reveals that their main goal in prayer is circumstance enhancement, not cultivating intimacy with the God of the galaxies who loves them. And you'll know this, you should know this, happiness is less about circumstances and more about allegiances and affections. Do you, do you have that kind of relationship with him? You just love spending time with him. See, that's the essence of the Christian life. She's, see, Jesus is making a distinction between religion and a relationship with God. And she's showing us this is what it means to have a heart that's captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. I love what, uh, it's, a, it's a famous, it's a very famous poem by John Donne um, speaking to God. He says, take me to you. Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Is your heart ravished by God? See, that's normal Christianity. See, sin is deeper than our behavior. Our problem is a worship problem. We are what we worship. How do you change your behavior? You change what you worship. This is really about changing our, what has our heart's deepest allegiances and affections. And she's showing us that. So, okay, what's, what intimacy with God does, here's the, here's the first thing that intimacy with God does. It, um, it frees you from people-pleasing, the fear of man. So, verse 39, she couldn't read this guy's mind. Jesus could read his mind. Very, very condescending, very condemning towards this woman. But she knew it. She knew the attitude. That's why uh, her going into this Pharisee's home was quite scandalous. That would have very seldom, that probably would have never happened because the, the Pharisees just condemned people left and right. They were very condescending. 
towards Gentiles in, in general, but especially people like this woman. But let me ask you this. Do you think she cares about what this guy thinks about her and says about her? She doesn't give a rip. She could care less. <laughs> Why is that? Because she's free. She's letting down her hair. She's weeping and kissing Jesus' feet. This is quite a spectacle, by the way. You got somebody doing that at a dinner party? What is this about? Does she care? No. She's free. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. The thing that used to master her is gone. She is the, that Jesus is the master of her life. So she's not afraid of anything. She's lost in wonder, love, and praise. Now, let me just say this. That some of you look way too stiff, starchy, and stoic when you're worshiping that first part of our worship time, kind of in the music time. I mean, just like this. And once in a while, what the heck? Oh, they forgot the words up there. Oh, that's a little bit too loud. It's like, oh my goodness. If you had any idea who you are, who you're having an encounter with, if you had any idea what he's done for you, if you begin to think deeply about his love for you and how he has forgiven you of all of your sins and he has placed his Holy Spirit within you, you can have a slice of heaven on earth that will take you to the sky, that will satisfy the deepest longing of your heart unlike anything else in this world. Believe me, you wouldn't give a rip about what anybody thought about you. You would come in here and express your love to God and I know for some of you, that's a big, big thing to, for you even to kind of raise your hand even a little bit like this. <laughs> I mean, that's big. Even for you to close your eyes. I don't want them to think I'm too spiritual here, so I'll just close my eyes here a little bit. Do they see what I'm doing here? Some of you don't even do that. You're just like... It's like, I wonder, I wonder why you're here. Oh, he shouldn't have said that. No, 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 Really? Why are you here? Why, why, why are you here? Are you here to have an encounter with the living God? I, I am. Oh, my goodness. Intimacy with God, my favorite. I love his presence. I absolutely love him. I can't believe that I have an audience with God, that I can know him, I can walk with him, I can enjoy him in my life. That's, that's the woman. Like I said, I started, you're going to leave here. You're going to either be like this, this religious dude, this guy, this Pharisee. You're going to be like her. One or the other. It's either going to be, it's either going to be religion or it's going to be the gospel. When you understand the gospel, it, it changes everything about you. So it frees you from people-pleasing, fear of man. It makes you a more loving, joyful, peaceful, and patient person. Did you notice the order in verse 47? Notice the order here. She's forgiven, therefore she loves much. She's forgiven, therefore she loves much. See, the problem is, is that if you don't love much, it's because you don't understand that you're forgiven. Your ability to love people and love life is completely due to how deeply you see your sin and how deeply you see yourself to be forgiven. If you don't have a heart filled with love, joy, and peace, if, you don't, if you're not living a life of sacrificial love, if you don't find it easy to love messed up people, if you don't have a lot of courage, compassion, and contentment in life, 
If instead you are critical all the time and complaining all the time and you're feeling sorry for yourself all the time and finding fault in everybody else all the time, it's because you don't understand the gospel and you don't have intimacy with God regardless of what you say. That's terribly convicting for me because there's a lot of times I'm just totally unloving, especially to those that are closest to me. And when I, I begin to realize, wait, 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 I'm not even living in the reality of what he's done for me. So I, I got to recalibrate. And the way I recalibrate, I come back into this intimacy with him. It's not earned. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't earn it. I, I can't earn it. It's not based on my merit. It's based on, on Jesus' merit for me. We receive a salvation that we don't deserve. That's, that's the gospel. And what's interesting about this idea of forgiveness is that anyone who forgives a debt absorbs or incurs the debt. The debt doesn't just disappear into thin air. It is absorbed by who? By the forgiver. So if someone forgives you, they've absorbed the debt. The cost, the debt is transferred to the forgiver. When God forgave your sins, he incurred the debt, and Jesus Christ died to pay it. Listen to me. That in itself, that your sins are forgiven and you have access into the throne room of God should be enough to give you all that you need and, and, and the very fact that you have his presence in your life give you all that you need to be able to face anything in life, absolutely anything. It makes you a more loving, joyful, peaceful, and patient person. Here's the next one. It gives you the peace of God to face anything. This is satisfaction, really, you could put there over, over the word peace, satisfaction. Verse 50, he says this, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. It's, it's faith that saves us. We put our faith in, in Christ. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Remember, remember faith, knowledge, belief, trust, content, conviction, commitment. I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to give him my life. It's not just a thing that you do once. You do it every day. You keep, you keep giving him your life. You live your life for him. I, I looked up this word peace. I found this word really interesting. I, when I study, there's one of the tools that I use. I use studylight.org. It'll take you to the Greek, Greek and the Hebrew. And uh, really fascinating. Listen to what it says about peace. It says this. Now keep in mind, this is what he said. He says, go in peace. Go in shalom. And the word peace means the tranquil state of a soul that is assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot whatsoever sort that is. If career or marriage or your children or whatever you could put there in that blank is more important than Jesus and anything goes wrong with your career or marriage or children, then you will be over the top anxious, angry, and depressed. Here's a woman, when she poured out her perfume, was saying this, I finally found what I've been looking for my whole life. I found it in Jesus. Her heart was smitten. Her heart was ravished. Her heart was captivated by Jesus. Listen to me, that's normal, healthy Christianity. 
your heart will be ravished by something. Let it be ravished by Jesus. Oh my goodness. When you begin to see him for who he is and all that he's done for you, man, you're gonna wanna give your life for him. You're gonna wanna live your life for him. She didn't just get the ability to love. She got a love. She got a love that filled her up, that satisfied her. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? Now, I love my wife. I love her love when she loves me. But no one has loved me like Jesus. His love is even better than my, my wife. I love my kids. I love when they love me. I love my grandkids. I love it when they love me. But nothing can beat the love of Jesus. In fact, my ability to love my, my wife and my kids and my grandkids and, and others is, is really directly related to, to understanding and experiencing his, his love for me. And I stated this earlier is that with intimacy with God, the things of this world become gifts, not gods. They get demoted to the appropriate places in our lives. Interesting quote, uh, you probably knew this, Sigmund Freud actually said, spirituality is really repressed sexuality. So the reason why you guys are so spiritual is because you have a lot of uh, sexual repression going on in your life. That's weird. Yeah, it was really weird when he said that, and that's, that's pretty strange. The Bible actually says sexuality is, is repressed spirituality. Here, here's what this woman is saying. All the sex in this world, there's a couple people who just woke up just right then when I said that. <laughs> All the sex in this world does not compare to what I have in Jesus. And I don't think she was doing that for the sex. By the way, prostitutes don't typically do it for the sex. Typically, they're very broken people, and it's almost kind of a homing instinct. They're going back to that which is most familiar to them, even if it's dysfunctional, and they come from typically, uh, there's a high percentage that come from abuse and brokenness and hurt, and it could be whatever reason it was, whatever reason it was, she poured it all out, all of, all of it out on Jesus and said, I am finding in him what I've been looking for in creation. I have found in the creator. Now, how do we have intimacy with God? Here we go. It is only by grace through faith in Christ consistent with the nature and the character of God as revealed through his word. How many of you ever heard people say this before? Well, I kind of like to think of God like this. Anybody? Show of hands. You guys are afraid to even admit this in church? Yeah, uh, okay. There's a couple of us. I've asked. You guys don't run with people like I run with, huh? those people that I run with. So they, yeah, they would say stuff like, well, I like to think of God like this. It doesn't matter what you think of God like, okay? You don't just make up God. What, you got a figment? Of, uh, f he's a figment in your own imagination? You can't come up with who you think God is. He's revealed himself to us. So we gotta go back to the scripture. You wanna have intimacy with God? You've gotta deal with him based on how he's revealed himself to you through scripture. And even at that, sometimes we don't do a very good job with that, so it is by grace through faith. So it's through Jesus' merit, I can have access to the throne room of God, but it's consistent with the nature and the character of God as revealed through his word. Now, let me give you a verse here. I, I, I always give you a ton of verses, and so you're gonna have to work through a lot of these verses, these cross-references, as you work through the growing notes each week. But look at this verse, Proverbs 18.10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So the character of God 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So let me ask you this. Do you know how to apply the truth of who God is and what he is doing and what he has done in your life specific to where your heart is most restless? So I know you get all stressed out. I know you get really angry from time to time. I know that you can get really depressed. So do you know how to take those truths and apply them specific to where your heart is most restless. That's what I'm talking about here. That you're, you're interacting with him based on how he's been revealed to you. Oh, and it begins to transform your life. See, see I find myself, I, I worry because I forget his wisdom. I become resentful because I forget his mercy. I covet because I forget his beauty. I sin because I, I forget about his holiness. I fear because I forget his sovereignty. So do you know how to do that? First of all, do you, are you in touch with where you are and that restlessness in your soul? And then are you able to take the truths of who Jesus is and begin to apply them to your heart? See, that's intimacy with God, consistent with, with his character, his nature. So theology, study of God, plus doxology, which is worship, equals soul-satisfying and life-liberating psychology. Spiritual disciplines are assumed here, is what I'm saying. Is that if, so when you read your Bible, when you pray, when you hang out with other Christians, when you come to church regularly, are you taking these truths and applying, applying them specifically to where your heart is most restless? What are you stressed out about? I'll, I'll guarantee you, there's a character part of God's nature that will meet you right there. He will meet you, not where you pretend to be, but where you really are. Where are you this morning? He wants to meet you right there. He will meet you right there, consistent with his character and his nature. Spiritual disciplines are, are not an end in themselves, but a means to an end. The end is intimacy with God. And now listen to me. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. Do you believe that? Do you believe that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality? What do you guys think? Okay. I do. I'm convinced of that. Life's most satisfying reality, intimacy with God. Nothing better. And if that's true, it's going to change the way you, you live out your life. God's been putting this on my heart for a long time. I've been working through some notes and some studies in this June uh, in the summer months here at Desert Breeze on Wednesday nights. I'm going to do about a six-week class on intimacy with God. It's not enough to know that God loves you. You must experience that love deep in your heart. How often do you experience that love? We're gonna spend about six weeks. I'll help you walk through that on Wednesday nights here. Starting in June, I'll let you know. Here's the next one. The more you rejoice in his indispensable and costly love for you, the more you will rest and release your grip on those things that compete for your heart's deepest allegiances and affections. She loves much is what he said in verse 47. Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. So what does it mean to rejoice? To rejoice means to treasure something by reflecting on its beauty, assessing its value, its importance, and finding pleasure in and of itself. So, okay, we're almost finished. Don't miss this. Do you spend time regularly just reflecting and rejoicing in, in who God is? By the way, we gave you a tool. You can download it for free. It's the New City Catechism. I would encourage you to do that. Here's what I do. It's part of my devotions. By the way, I spend a couple hours, two to three hours, the first part of my day, uh, just 
interacting, intimacy with God, enjoying him. One of the things that I do is I take the New City Catechism and I take the Q&A and work through that. And then it's very, very quick. And then I look at the verse, meditate on it, reflect on it, then read the little bit of commentary, and then I pray the prayer. Oh my goodness, talk about rich and, and robust. There's a, there's a richness there that he invites us to have that, that level of intimacy with him. It's amazing. I'll take verses like I, I took this last week, Psalm 32, 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. I begin to reflect on that, just thinking about that, rejoicing in that. What does that mean to me? How can I apply that to my life? Thank you, God, that you are my hiding place. I have a place of intimacy with you. When I'm scared, when I'm, when I'm worried, when I'm struggling, whatever it is, I can run to you. I come to you and find a place of comfort and strength and hope and help and happiness. That there's no place on this planet that I can find that except in you. That's part of that. I said indispensable. Why indispensable? Because there's no other way. I'm, I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. Costly, he gave his life for me. See, when Jesus becomes more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than anything else in life, you are discovering intimacy with God. Find out what the flask around your neck is and lay it down at Jesus' feet. Believe me, you will find so much unspeakable and glorious joy in the person and work of Jesus that it will ruin you for anything else. Here's the last point. You will begin to sense, this is what will happen, this is what I, I want you to experience. You will begin to sense deep in your heart the delight of the only eyes in the universe that matter. That's what she experienced. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, I mean, he's addressing her. He's interacting with her and saying, Simon, you see, you should be more like her. You hear the affirmation that she's getting and then in verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So let me ask you this. So when you spend time with the Lord, do you have those moments when you hear deep in your heart, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Do you hear that? Do you sense that? See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It tells us in Romans 8, 15 through 16, his spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When God's voice is on HDTV and all other voices are AM radio, you know you have intimacy with God. So here's the question. What if I don't, what if I don't hear that voice? What if I'm not experiencing that? What if I'm struggling to hear his words of, of affirmation? Come back next week to find out. That guy is so mean. Sorry, but that's what we're going to talk about. That's the next section in the text, Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 21. We're going to talk about our heart. There's, there, there's probably something we've got to work on our heart. We've got to struggle there in our heart. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you. Thank you for this rich, oh my goodness, there's such depth to your word. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And so this morning, we give our heart's deepest loyalties, our deepest allegiances and affections to you, and we pray that it would free us from people-pleasing, it would make us more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient people, that it would give us a peace so that we can face anything. Teach us how we can relate to you consistent with your character and your nature as revealed in your words, that we would rejoice in your indispensable and costly love for us regularly so that we could rest and, and release our grip on those things that would compete for our heart's deepest allegiances and affections so that we could sense deep in our heart this, the delight of the only eyes in the universe that matter. 
you, God, affirming us, loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.